War simulation games um, are some of the most popular and best-selling genres of, uh, of video games. Uh, they're games in which uh, the, the player controls a soldier who is fighting in a virtual combat, and every game depicts typically a, a different war and uh, perhaps different scenarios, different objectives, different weapons. Uh, most of them are first-person role-playing games, and for those of you that aren't gamers, what that means is that uh, when you play the game, what you see is what the character sees. You're not behind the character watching their, their whole body move, but you are in control, and it's, and it's if you are in the game seeing what he sees and seeing what, uh, uh, hearing what he hears and all that. Now, those games, I mean, they can be fun. I've been known, my past my younger years to play games like that. I'm not a gamer. I might play Mario Kart with my kids on the Wii, but that's about as far as it goes. But these types of games can also be dangerous, uh, especially for men. And uh, men are especially hardwires, hardwired to be protectors and uh, to be uh, fighters. And when we engage in games uh, such as that, of course we know that it's not real. But yet our brain still emits hormones that are necessary for combat or to protect against danger. And so playing these games often produces an increased level of, of adrenaline and endorphins and cortisol and testosterone, among others. And you might ask, well, why is that bad or why is that dangerous? Uh, well, you know, number one, it increases addictive tendencies. Uh, you chase the high. And the more that you chase the high, uh, the more you need to do in order to, to get those feelings. And in order to get those, the longer you, you, you need to play and perhaps the, the more violent nature you need to, uh, to pursue in that content. And, and second, because you have conditioned yourself in order to have those, uh, those hormones through the video games, you are considerably less likely to stand up and be active when you truly need it, when danger is actively present. God has given us these, these chemicals uh, stored up and ready to be released in times of needing to protect and to defend life, yet we have generations right now that are wasting these things on things that aren't even real. Intellectually, you know, it's just call of duty. But your brain thinks it is at war and it adjusts accordingly. As the gamers uh, live for this fake virtual fantasy that tricks their brain into uh, thinking reality is something that it's not, so most Christians are living in a fake spiritual fantasy in which they have been tricked into thinking that all is well. And all is okay, and they can just coast into eternity by going to church every so often. Maybe uh, giving a little to the church, maybe reading their Bibles a little bit, maybe praying just a little bit. All the while, there is a very real, serious war going on all around them and inside of them. This is a war that is far more deadly and has claimed far more lives than all the casualties of all the wars that have ever happened in human 
history combined. This is a war that is being waged for your soul now, tomorrow, and indeed until you are in glory, and most of us are completely ignorant or in denial that this war even exists. Friends, when it comes to the Christian life, we're not playing video games. From the moment that we said yes to Christ, we enlisted in a spiritual war that we must be prepared to fight and must be prepared to fight to the death. For the past few weeks, we've been talking about how the gospel ought to shape every single aspect of our lives from the most minute to the most important, biggest parts of our, of our lives and our experience. In our passage today, Paul is going to cap that conversation off by teaching us how we are to go about doing those things. And he does this by informing us, by equipping us for spiritual warfare. He invites the idea into our hearts that there is an unseen spiritual reality of good versus evil 24-7, 365, and that we must engage in this war. Friends, if we are in Christ, we are certainly at war, but mercifully, we are not left to ourselves. God has given us tools to fight the good fight of faith. He has given us himself. He has empowered us to be able to tap in to that power that he has so that we can live productive and fruitful and uh, victorious lives. And so as we've already read the passage, we're going to go straight into our points this morning. And the first is, is that we need to cling to the power and strength of God. We need to cling to the power and strength of God. Uh, verse 10 begins with the word finally, and that's evidence that, uh, that he is wrapping up his argument. Um, but he hints that what he's about to say needs to stick. This is really important for you and I to pay attention to. When he says finally, he's going to lay out something that is a big deal. He has spent the last three chapters outlining how the gospel ought to uh, show the importance of the church and how the gospel uh, shapes our relationships in the church. He has shown us how the gospel ought to uh, shape our marriages, how it ought to shape our parenting, how it ought to shape our, uh, our work life. And now in verse 10, he provides the most important imperative or command for us to pay attention to. In the entire letter, he says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. One of the first things that ought to take, that we ought to take note from this command here, is Paul's insinuation of our weakness. And he's been laying the groundwork for, for this idea since the beginning. Back in chapter 1, he detailed how it was God who chose us in him before the foundation of the world. How it was God that adopted us. How it was God through the work of Jesus that provides forgiveness. And that it was God that sealed us with the Holy Spirit as a down payment for the day in which we will be fully redeemed. In chapter 2, he detailed how we don't bring anything to the table spiritually except spiritual corpses in which we come alive by God's power in Christ. It is God's grace that saves us. 
The language in Ephesians 2 even tells us that our faith is a gift from God. In other words, the first two to three chapters are all about our inability, about our weaknesses to do anything. All of it is from God to God and for God. So now by saying that we need to be strong in the Lord and in the, the strength of his might here, he is implying that we aren't able to keep unity in ourselves. We aren't able to have healthy marriages. We aren't able to get along in our own strength. We aren't able to, to parent in our own strength. We aren't able to hold stable employment in our own strength. None of these things are in our power. We are too weak. We are, uh, we are powerless to the power of sin. So we have to then tap into the strength and a power that is not our own. And Paul tells us that if we are in Christ, we have a pillar of strength that is fortified, and we have a fountain of power that will, will never run dry. Uh, Psalm 46 verse 1 uh, tells us uh, in a summary that God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. The flesh is of no avail. Let us instead be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And how are we to do this? Paul tells us actually in verse 11. He tells us to put on the, the, the whole armor of God. So when that, that day of trouble comes, and come often it does, how often do we want to run into our own ingenuity? How often do we want to tap into our experience, our education, our self-control, our perceptions and our feelings? How many of us want to run to the, the consultation of the world and this culture? How, many, how quickly will we want to run to the gurus of the culture and the pop psychology that tells us about all the ways that we can help ourselves? We'll go to anything and everything first, only to be disappointed again and again and again and again. Obeying the word of God in this text will keep us from more spiritual ills and sicknesses than we even realize. And Paul tells us further in verse 11 that we do this that we may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. You know, there are many today that want to um, dismiss the reality of the devil. But we see uh, that those who trust God's word, that from the beginning, Genesis chapter 3, Satan certainly has been active in our world. This is a very real reality. The, the, the word scheme in, in the Greek here is methodia which is where we get our word method from. So what, what Paul is saying here is that Satan has a method of doing things. He is smart. He is organized. He knows what he is doing. He knows how to create doubt in your mind concerning that sin that, that was fully covered by Christ Jesus. He knows theology better than you do and is cunning enough to twist it around to be something that it is not. But our Lord told us in John chapter 8, verse 
44, he said that uh, he, being Satan, does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So whereas Jesus says that Satan stands in lies and deception, deceit, we are to stand by putting on the whole armor of God so that we can stand our ground against those schemes. He puts the battle into perspective in, in verse 12. He says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Uh, that is, that our fight is not against people. It's not against institutions or systems. Rather, we ought to see those, uh, those things in the compassion of, of our God. They are under the control of our true enemy, and we ought to fight to rescue them from the fire that they are currently under. So who are our true enemies? Who is it that has a death grip on the world? Well, Paul says that it is the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Uh, inciting rulers and authorities here, Paul is not talking about um, earthly systems. There are far too many people that want to uh, dismiss or poo-poo uh, this reality of the demonic world and rather see it as a symbol for social justice. To them, the real evil in this world is systematic injustice. So you have groups like Black Lives Matter and, and Antifa that come on the scene in the name of all that is good, and uh, they're, they're claiming to be the heroes of the day when all they're doing is espousing an idea of, of cultural communism that is anti-gospel and anti-Christ. That is not what Paul is saying here, nor would Paul even agree with that. Rather, he is pointing to the spiritual world here that we don't see. Now, Satan is not omnipresent. Uh, rulers and authorities and powers, however, do seem to have some sort of a structure uh, in this realm. Paul calls them the heavenly places. But also, remember that uh, it's these heavenly places that if we were to go back to chapter 1, verse 3, that Paul says that we are blessed by God in Christ in these heavenly places places. We fight against these cosmic powers whose MO is nothing but attempting us to lead, uh, attempting us to go into sin, disbelieve the gospel, or to tarnish the reputation of Christ. These are forces, friends, that you cannot win on your own. You need another strength. We must, therefore, we must uh, accept our weakness, admit it, and cling to the power and strength of God in the victory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And second, we need to take up the battle fatigues. We need to take up the, 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 the suit of the warrior here. Just like any soldier fighting for battle, we have to put on the fatigues of a Christian soldier. And what are those fatigues? Well, Paul says in verse 13 that uh, take up the whole armor of God. Now, if you're an underliner in your Bible, one word that you might want to pay attention to is the word whole. This isn't a partial set. We're not piecing these out. It's not as if it is an incomplete uh, weaponry that Paul is talking about. This is the full armor. Partial armor will only leave us exposed and compromised. 
So we must take up the entire armor. Why? Paul goes on to say, so that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. You know, every year during hurricane season, uh, I, I love watching weather reports because you're always going to have that one crazy meteorologist that decides he's strong enough to go against the wind and, and all those crazy storms. And as he's trying to do his, his report, he's getting slapped silly by all these uh, raindrops and all that. And I've even seen some where it's so serious, he stopped reporting. And he's standing in the middle of the street just trying to hold his weight down because this power of the storm is coming so strong upon him. It looks dangerous. It looks uncomfortable. It looks kind of fun, but I don't know if I would want to be out there. And that's an image that we need to keep in mind when we stand firm in our own power because there are going to be difficult days. There are going to be different, uh, difficult seasons. There are going to be hurricanes and there are going to be floods that come in your life that want to sweep you away. However, Paul tells us that one of the, the purposes of putting on the full armor of God is to stand tall and stand strong in that day of evil when it comes upon you. What is the day of evil? Well, on the one hand, Scripture tells us that the day of evil is that, uh, that end of the day's final push where Satan and all of his power and, 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 and lackeys are pushing towards the end. But on the other hand, uh, we are living in the day of evil, Peter talks about this in his, in his letters uh, again and again. We live in a day in which Jesus has set salvation into motion. It's active. We are saved, but we're not saved fully yet. He still has yet to, to come through on that full redemption, which he indeed will. So we're living in this already not yet of salvation, where we're already saved, but not fully yet. And we're living in a time in which evil can still influence us. We see it in our temptation to sin. We, we see it in the consequences of our sin. And the consequences of other sin against us. We see it in the fact that death is still a current reality. We feel it in pain. We feel it in sickness. And to take up the full armor of God isn't necessarily an offensive thing where we, we get in those boats and we storm the, the beaches of Normandy. But rather, Paul is saying that this is, a, this is more so a defensive strategy that says, no matter how hard this wind hits me, I am unmoved because I am standing in the strength of Christ. The individual pieces of this armor, starting in verse 14, uh, is where Paul lays this out. However, we would do a disservice to ourselves and our engagement in uh, uh, spiritual warfare if we view these as independent, just simply working in tandem. So I'm going to briefly piecemeal them out a little bit, go through each one of them, and then I'm going to put them together in a way that you might not quite expect. And so the first one we see is the belt of truth. 
Everything that we are and everything that we do in Christ is held up by truth. You know, in, in 3 John 4, John tells us that, that truth is what we walk in. Um, it is our identity. We are grounded in the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done and who we are in union with him. John 17, Jesus says that God's word is truth. It is, it is God's truth that isn't just, uh, the Bible doesn't just contain God's truth. It is the truth of who God is. John 14, 6, Jesus told his disciples that he is the embodiment of truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So when we put on the belt of truth, we are standing firm in who Jesus is and the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done for us and who we are in him. Second notice, Paul tells us to put on the breastplate of righteousness. The uh, breastplate was really important because it, pr it protected vital organs. Uh, think about it like a, like a bulletproof vest. Spiritually speaking, the breastplate of righteousness protects our most important spiritual organ, and that is our heart. The book of Proverbs tells us that the heart is the wellspring of life, and from it all things flow. Jesus said that from out of the heart the mouth speaks. So our heart is indeed the epicenter of our, of our being. And here, we need to remember that righteousness means uh, being right with God and living rightly in his world. In his attacks against us, Satan will try to get us to doubt that we are righteous. He'll do this by appealing to our sin and our rebellion against God. And here's, in a sense, he's right. In a sense, he's right. We have sin. We have rebellion against God. But by the grace of God, when we trust in Christ, it's not our righteousness that we're standing in. Rather, it is Christ's righteousness that is given to us. Remember whose armor this is. This isn't ours. This is the armor of God. Christ's righteousness given to us. We stand protected in Christ's righteousness. Number three, as uh, shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Well, one of the biggest weapons that Satan has in his arsenal is discouragement. Do you feel discouraged at all this week in any way? I know I did. How heavy our heads hang when we're convicted of sin or things don't go according to our plan. And Satan will capitalize on that and give us a sense of condemnation and fearful judgment. And it's with that that we need to reflect on the gospel of what, uh, what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, when he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Think of in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The peace we desperately need is graciously given to us in the gospel, the good news of the person and work of Jesus. Number four, the shield of faith which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. Uh, a, a Roman shield was nothing like our imagination of a shield. When we think of shield, we think of Captain America, right? Like a garbage can lid that's painted with a star on it. 
And uh, we think of shields in, in that sort of way. But in a Roman context, a shield would have been anywhere from five feet tall to six feet tall. It would have been covered in leather. And before they would go out to battle, they would take those leather shields and they would dunk them in water. And they would saturate those shields so much so that the water content is unbelievable, makes it heavier. But there's a purpose for it. Because oftentimes the enemies would, would take uh, their, their bow and arrow and they would take the, the tip of it and they would put uh, pitch all around it. And then they would set it on fire. They would lean back and they'd shoot it. And if they didn't happen to hit their, their enemy with it and it hit behind them, then it would start a fire around them and it would cause uh, chaos everywhere that, uh, uh, that this was employed. However, if it hit a water-saturated shield, it would extinguish the flame like that, and the soldier could advance. Now, Satan loves to throw flaming darts of accusation at us, sometimes maybe at an angle, maybe sometimes right on at point blank. He's not discriminant in that. However, if you've, uh, if you've been a Christian for 10 minutes, you're, you're keenly aware of how much you need the shield of faith. But when you take it up, again, this is not your own. It's a gift from God. Those darts can't set your world on fire. Number five, take on the helmet of salvation. Helmets are, are invaluable pieces of equipment. There's this scene in Saving Private Ryan where it's right away in the beginning, I think, that they're, they're storming the beach, and a soldier gets shot right in the helmet. And he realizes how the helmet saved him. And so he takes off the helmet, and he looks at it in awe of the protection that this provided. And the guy next to him said, wow, you are really lucky that you had that helmet on. And as they're looking over the protection of this helmet, he gets shot right in the head. He should have kept the helmet on the entire time. We need to keep the, sel- the, the helmet of salvation on at all times. Salvation is a gift from God. Throughout all of Scripture, it continually tells us salvation is of the Lord. It is not something that we can take up ourselves, but when we experience salvation and put it on as a helmet, it protects our minds, which is very important. Our minds is the, are the first line of defense when fighting against the evil one. If, if the enemy can get into our minds, they can get anywhere into our lives. Finally, six, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You know, swords have a universal appeal. You take any little boy to the woods where sticks are plenty. what are they going to do? They're going to pick it up, and they're going to start swinging around like it's a sword. If there's more than one, you know what they're going to do? They're going to start sword fighting. Even if they've never read a story about a sword, never seen a movie or a show about a sword, they're always going to be sword fighting against each other because we're just hardwired to think swords are cool for some reason. But the, the kind of sword that Paul refers to here is not the kind that we think of. It's not um, that uh, super long sword that you would think of someone from the Revolutionary War. It wasn't these, these big things that you just have to use so much motion. It was really just sort of like a two to three foot long sword. It's sort of a hobbit-sized sword, if you want to think about it in that term. 
its uh, weapon of offense and defense. It was a double-edged sword. It was more for close combat. And Paul here is saying that this is like the sword of Scripture. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that all Scripture is breathed out by God. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God might be uh, complete, equipped for every good work. Scripture is sufficient for all of, all of life. It is sufficient for spiritual warfare. Rob Ventura, in his, his great book, Spiritual Warfare, notes that wielding the sword uh, of the word is more than sufficient for knowing the enemy, evangelizing the lost, strengthening fellow soldiers, fighting sin and temptation, strengthening our faith, and worshiping properly. It's only through Scripture that we can know God rightly. It is only through Scripture that we can be wise unto salvation and know how to live lives that are pleasing to God. This isn't our word. This is God's word. And we must employ it in our, in our fight of faith. When we think about these, these, uh, this battle gear that we would put on, one theme emerges. These aren't ours. These are someone else's. They are God's. When uh, we are only able to take these up because someone else took them up fully and was 100% victorious. Isaiah 600 years before Jesus, prophesied uh, in uh, Isaiah chapter 11 when he said, Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. See, in Isaiah 59, he put on righteousness as a breastplate, and the helmet of salvation as its head. When Jesus condescended himself and took on flesh, he also took on the full armor of God, and he employed it flawlessly in his sinless life, in his atoning death, and in his resurrecting power. And so when Paul tells us to put on the full armor of God, he isn't telling us to put on some different pieces of a spiritual wardrobe. He is telling us to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. He is telling us that Christ is our all. To put on Jesus means to strip everything off of yourself. Your pride, your self-sufficiency, your uh, self-protection, your, your self-worth. And instead, put your identity squarely on the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's exactly what Paul said in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, when he said, I have been crucified with Christ, meaning I no longer live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Put yourself in those words for a minute. That you have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. And the life that you now live in the flesh, you live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. Church, 
put on the full armor of God by being less of yourself and more of Christ. Now, in verse 18, Paul finally writes the two things that we are able to do. The first, we ought to pray. He writes, praying at all times in the Spirit. And the manner of that is with all prayer and supplication. This doesn't mean that we're to be on our knees 24-7 praying, but it does mean that we are to live in a spirit of dependence, knowing that we can't do this on our own, that we need the power of the resurrected Lord through the power of the Holy Spirit. We need to be in constant communication with the general of our army. Broken communication uh, means only confusion, defeat, and death. We must live dependently, and we do so in prayer. And second, we keep alert with all perseverance. Friends, the devil does not go on vacation. He doesn't have sick time. And he will exploit your weakness when you let your guard down. If you live in a peacetime mentality while here on earth, he will take advantage of that. You let your guard down for one minute, five minutes, whatever it is, expecting that everything will go just fine, you'll find that your mind starts wandering off in places that it shouldn't. You might find that your foot very quickly goes in your mouth. You might find very quickly that your actions can cause a lifetime of pain and hurt. We must keep alert with all perseverance, but we do so knowing that if the walls do go down and we do stumble, we have a gracious and a merciful God who picks us up from that battlefield. He dusts us off. He binds our wounds. He forgives us, makes us whole, and sends us right back onto that battlefield to fight another day. Church, this is not call of duty. This isn't some first-person role-playing video game. This battle is real. You can't see it. But it's there. It's deadly. But we don't fight alone. We don't fight unequipped. We fight knowing the end. Though the battle might rage on today in real time, God has already won. So we go out then in the strength of the Lord. We do so in the full armor that he provides in Jesus Christ in full assurance of victory. So what are you going to do today? The word is clear. We cannot be passive. If we're spiritual jellyfish, it's time to grow a spine. We need We need to be ready for this. As one of your pastors, I encourage you to stand and fight. Fight for your faith. Fight for your soul. Fight for your family. Fight for your church. But do so only in the strength and the power that comes from God in Christ Jesus. Friends, let's pray.